the History Channel original podcast. Sports history this week, November 6th, 1869. I'm Kalen Jones. Twenty-five students are on the 10 o'clock train from Princeton to Rutgers. They're football players. According to the Rutgers student newspaper, the Princeton athletes are, almost without exception, tall and muscular. That might pose a problem for the Rutgers players, who, by comparison, are small and light, but, the paper says, possess the merit of being up to much more than they look. After a stroll around New Brunswick, the players take the field. Princeton wins the coin toss. The game starts at 3 p.m. This game doesn't look a lot like an American football game you'd watch today. The players weren't allowed to throw the ball or run with it. The ball itself wasn't even pointing. Instead, they're trying to kick or bat this round rubber ball between some goalposts eight paces wide. First team to score six goals wins. But the gameplay does have some features you'd recognize. Running, shouting, kicking. A player on Princeton's team knocks down anything in his path. There are some great kicks from the Rutgers athletes. And on the sidelines, there are fans, other students who have come to watch. And as the story goes, a group of Princeton students who all live together in Nassau Hall break into a cheer. It's now known as the Princeton Locomotive. Rah, 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 sis, 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 boom, boom, boom. Princeton, Princeton, Princeton. That football game on November 6th, it's the first football game ever played between two colleges. And those fans on the side are considered the original cheerleaders. Cheerleading literally grew out of a bunch of people jumping for joy. Today, a brief history of cheer. How did jumping for joy turn into a big business? And how did cheerleaders go from the epitome of masculinity to femininity to now challenging the entire role of gender in sports? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When I was a kid, my bedroom was like a shrine to sports. Little League trophies filled the tops of dressers. 
and the walls were covered with Raiders posters. Much of it, cheerleading merch. I was going through a trading card deck the other day. I was like, man, I can't believe mom gave me all this. Yes, <laughs> you had all the memorabilia on your walls. That is my mom. Kimberly Jackson Jones, and I am a former Los Angeles Raider cheerleader. So Raiderette. Your trading card is up online too, right? Like on, on yes, the Amazon. Yes, I was surprised to see that. <laughs> I was like, wow, <laughs> hey, there's me. I'm worth all of what, $7 and some change. <laughs> that's more than a lot of NFL players actually, because that's the thing I was trying to see if I- My mom never expected to become a cheerleader. She ran track in high school, even earned a scholarship to sprint in college. And I think my disdain for cheerleaders came when I'd be at the long jump pit ready to get my rhythm. What people do is they clap to help you get a rhythm. And I'd start running and then they're cheering a cheer and you're like, no, 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 no. It's like, be quiet. Obviously, my mom got past her anti-cheer mindset. It's not as easy as everybody thinks. It's trivialized and diminished and ridiculed, but it's really an important cultural icon. Dr. Natalie Adams is a professor at the University of Alabama who didn't always take cheer seriously. In the 90s, she was working as a sociologist on a feminist research team, studying leadership in middle school girls. She remembers they kept asking these middle schoolers, who are the leaders in the school? And they kept getting the same answer. Cheerleaders. And I have to say, as feminists, feminists are pretty much scoff at cheerleading, so it didn't gain our attention until the girls kept talking about it over and over and over again. So then we were like, wow, we should start paying attention to this. Adams wrote a book called Cheerleader, an American Icon. It turned her and her co-author into authorities on the history of cheer because it hasn't widely been studied. But Adams says there's a lot cheerleading can teach us about our country and its values. I mean, patriotism, loyalty, perseverance through adversity, you know, cheerleaders personify that. You get the image of the all-American girl. And that can all be traced back to another all-American activity. Football fans are packing huge stadia from coast to coast. Football. Without football, there would be no cheerleading. Football gives people something to cheer for. In the years after that first Princeton-Rutgers game, cheering becomes more official. There's a student at the University of Minnesota in 1898 who's credited with the idea that you need one person to lead the yell, the cheerleader. In the early days, cheerleaders were called a lot of things. They were called cheerleaders, two words. They were called rooter kings. They were called uh, Yale marshals, Yale leaders. And as intercollegiate football spreads across the country, the fans start to find their voice. It becomes the creation of culture. Football is not just about the men playing on the field. It's also about what happens on the sidelines. And so this cheering, you know, we start having the adoption of school colors, mascots, alma maters, fight songs. I mean, all of this becomes part of what we all just accept as the normal part of the spectacle of football. You might already know that football is somewhat controversial at first. It's violent. Teddy Roosevelt even threatens to ban the sport altogether. There were lots of college presidents who lamented the growth of football. They saw it as barbaric. It was uncivilized. 
there were calls for its demise. What's interesting is they are also lamenting the rise of cheerleading. In 1910, Harvard's president, A. Lawrence Lowell, is speaking at a convention of Boston music teachers. Who, of course, are very concerned with vocals, right? He tells them that the only thing worse than cheering would be a chorus of foghorns and that cheerleading was going to be ruinous to the delicate sensibilities that the university was trying to inculcate in its students. But even in 1910, Lowell's take is tired. The editors of the magazine, The Nation, publish an entire rebuttal basically saying Harvard's president just isn't getting with the times. They just attack Lowell for being an old fogey. And they respond with saying, the reputation of having been a valiant cheerleader is one of the most valuable things a boy can take away from college. A boy can take away from college. Remember, many of the country's elite colleges didn't allow women to enroll yet. Cheerleading began as an all-male activity, and for most of its first 50 years, That is who dominated cheerleading. It was actually seen as the epitome of masculinity and American manhood. These are not the queen bees and pleated skirts of modern cheerleading stereotypes. Instead, those editors of the nation write that when it comes to a cheerleader status, it breaks hardly second to that of being a quarterback. So when did women start, you know, appearing not just on college campuses, but when did they start to take over as you know, the face of cheerleading. As women gained admission into college campuses, you know, by the 1920s, you do have some cheerleaders on collegiate squads that are women. But that takeover doesn't really happen until the 1940s. Part of history is the day in 1940 when more than 16 million young Americans, in answer to the highest obligation of their citizenship, placed themselves at the disposal of their country. So... When World War II broke out and so many of our men were deployed overseas, many of them college men, they left campus. And so suddenly there were all these cheerleading squads that had openings and the women stepped in. As happens in many industries, when the men return from war, they expect to find those jobs ready for them to take back. And the women don't want to give them up. And so you kind of see this tug of war in the late 1940s about, okay, who's going to win cheerleading? And there's some great articles written. There's one that appears in the magazine called School Activities, and they list all the reasons why women should not be cheerleaders, that they're not athletic enough, their voices are too shrill, they'll get conceited if they're the leaders, and, and I love this one, they may pick up cursing in use of profanity. And surely we can't have women cursing, much less thinking they're the leaders. There were a couple of places. The University of Tennessee was one that, after the war, actually banned female cheerleaders. But it's no use. By the 1950s, women have won the battle for the right to cheer. So you have a real cultural shift from being the personification of ideal masculinity to this notion of ideal femininity and hyperfeminization. Think pom-poms, pleated skirts, and a lot of those hallmarks of modern cheerleading can be traced back to one guy, the so-called grandfather of cheerleading. Lawrence Larry Herky Herkimer. 
We'll just refer to him as Herky because that is what he went by. Herky himself had been a cheerleader when he was a college student in Dallas. He'd been one of the men who went off the war and came back ready to pick up his cheer career where he left off. And when he graduated, he kept coaching cheer squads as a side hustle. He was very smart. He was very entrepreneurial. And he realized that cheerleading by this time, you know, was on most college campuses and high schools. And while there were a few people who had already started offering cheerleading camps, there were very few and far between. So Herky starts hosting his own. He calls this business the National Cheerleaders Association. He starts hosting clinics and brokering deals with colleges to hold camps over the summer in empty dorms. They make money, they pay the college a fee. He starts the first cheerleading magazine called The Megaphone. He's credited with the creation of the pom-pom, which he actually patented. He's also credited with inventing the spirit stick, the most coveted prize that your cheer team brings home. Herky and his wife Dorothy launch an apparel company. Dorothy designs the classic 16-pleat twirl skirts, and they start selling, shipping out catalogs to high school girls. Here's Herky in an interview with the Varsity Cheer Company. Kids wanted to dress alike to when they came out and performed their cheers, but they couldn't go to a department store and, and get 20 outfits alike. So we went into the uniform business. He creates an industry. It corporatizes cheerleading and Herkimer has this great quote where he says, cheerleading can survive any economic downturn because you will sell your boat before you tell your little girl she cannot be a cheerleader. And he's proven to be right. I mean, cheerleading is an incredibly lucrative business. By 1973, Herky's camps are training 100,000 cheerleaders a year. And... He made famous a jump called the Herky, and every cheerleader worth their salt knows how to do a Herky. Do you know what a Herky is? <laughs> Can you describe it? I do know what a Herky is, and so I'll educate you. My mom and former Raiderette Kimberly Jackson-Jones again. A Herky is a jump that you do that almost looks like if you're going over a hurdle. So one knee is bent and then the other one is straight and you kind of, you kick really fast up. Yeah, I don't think I could do that. <laughs> yeah, no. No, it's life. not easy. We don't do Herkies in NFL because we're dancing in high heels. We stay level to the ground. We wore long sleeve shirts and then your breasts are pushed up. If you did any type of thing that bent over, you would be flashing a lot of people. So no pyramids or any, anything like that? No, not in NFL. We're, we're being sexy. I mean, it's going to be honest. We're just being, it was about being sexy. Yeah, mom, you're allowed to say this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know who's going to watch this and go, oh my gosh, you said the sex word. When cheerleaders first appeared on NFL sidelines, they actually were Herky-style high schoolers wearing pleated skirts and sweaters with big letters on the front. But that all changed in the early 70s with the Dallas Cowboys. There's a lot of folklore associated with cheerleading, right? The classic story credits the Cowboys general manager, Tex Schramm, with having a bright idea to attract crowds. One day, a local burlesque performer is at the game. And she's got this tight kind of leopard print, I think, mini skirt. She goes to the stands, she gets two cotton candies, and she starts blowing kisses to everybody. She created quite a stir. The story goes, Shram gets inspired 
like, oh, wow. And an idea of a different type of cheerleader was planted that day that's going to be flashier, it's going to be a little racier. They're really going to be entertainers. Shram starts working with a woman named Dee Brock, who'd been directing the high schoolers who were then the Cowboys cheerleaders. Brock says putting adult cheerleaders on the sidelines was actually her idea. She said she got Shram on board. She's the one who hired the choreographer. She says that she even sketched out the early uniform. The halter tops, skimpy shorts, white boots, white belts. Bottom line is they decide that they want adult women clad in very scantily, you know, halter tops. And really, they're dancers. The crowds love them. And during a game in November 1975, the cameraman is panning around, filming what are called honey shots. Where, you know, the camera will focus on a, a beautiful girl in the stands. And on this particular night... They focused on a cheerleader. She gives this big sexy wink. And, of course, it's the modern-day version of going viral. Did you like that, Frank? I did like that. <laughs> Little wink. The story goes that after that, their phones start ringing off the hook at the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders for requests for appearances. And the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders become kind of the sexual pinups of the day, right? I think she was doing that for you, Frank. I don't know, she was very effective. Other sports teams are taking notice, seeing the potential to capitalize from this new type of cheerleader. And as the number of high-heeled dancers in the NFL grows, Herky's original style of cheerleader is under threat. Because high school and college girls are getting a new message. Stay away from cheerleading. Not like the first time they were told this after the war, when men wanted to hog the sidelines for themselves. Instead, let's move girls off the sidelines, meaning cheerleading, to the playing fields. In 1972, the U.S. passes Title IX, a historic law providing equal opportunities for women in sports. Suddenly, you know, high school girls have lots of opportunities other than just cheering, right? And the mantra of feminists who were instrumental in getting that legislation passed was, why would you be a cheerleader when you could be the star player on the field? Adam says Title IX turned cheerleaders into the enemy of women's rights. This idea that Cheerleading is about keeping women subservient, keeping women on the sidelines. And so suddenly cheerleading kind of personifies these kind of older ideals of femininity. And so it's a problem. The times, they are a-changing. Herky, whose organization still dominates the world of high school and college cheer, doesn't want to change with them. But someone else is about to come along and give him a run for his money. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the early 1970s, right around the time the Dallas Cowboys are launching their new brand of cheerleaders and Title IX is being hotly debated, Herky's company hires a new employee, someone named Jeff Webb. Jeff Webb could be seen as either the ungrateful stepson or the shrewd businessman who kept cheerleading from going extinct. Natalie Adams told us, Webb is fresh out of college when he comes to work for Herky. He's 25 years younger than Herky is, and he can see the tides are turning against their traditional sort of collegiate cheer. If they want cheerleading to survive, he thinks, they're going to have to innovate. He was responding to changing times in a way that Herkimer was not. He thinks, what if we turn cheer into a real athletic endeavor, something that challenges the competitors and entertains the crowds? And so he leaves in 1974, and he takes 12 of the NCA employees, goes to Memphis, and creates a rival company called Universal Cheerleaders Association. Universal Cheerleaders Association, featuring America's most talented instructors. Cheerleading safety from the experts. Webb's company starts offering their own camps and clinics. But instead of just teaching herky jumps and somersaults, they teach complex gymnastics, flips, pyramids. One of the guys that they took with them was this nationally renowned gymnast and trampolinist, and he's the one that actually kind of created this progression of stunt building and pyramid building, throwing people up and down and catching them. Webb starts his own apparel brand called Varsity to compete with Herkes. His uniforms look more athletic and are built to bend and stretch. Webb hires fashion designers to create a sleeker look with fabrics that are more conducive to jumping and tumbling and that form of athleticism. In 1981, Webb organizes his first national championship competition. Two years later, he convinces ESPN to put it on TV. Welcome back to the 1986 National High School Cheerleading Championship. He introduces this more athletic form of cheerleading, which leads to the idea that you've got to be skilled in order to try out for cheerleading. And we'd like to show our audience exactly what good cheerleading technique is. Nice round up backhands from backflips. It's not enough just to get in front of the student body, yell a cheer, and do a cartwheel on the split, right? You had to get training. Webb's new take on cheerleading completely reshapes the industry. Now, there are squads that don't exist just to be on the sidelines supporting a college or NFL team, but compete and perform as a team themselves. There is what's called all-star cheerleading, not associated with any schools or universities. They exist solely for competition. Now, there's also competitive cheerleading who, yes, they are providing the role of ambassadors for their school and performing all the traditional duties, but 
their primary focus, if you ask them, is competition. The Netflix series Cheer, which premiered in 2020, follows one of those competitive collegiate squads at a Texas school called Navarro College. People from all over the country come here to cheer. My goal was to be the best cheer program in the country. Whoever thought of chucking someone into the air and see how many times they can flip? That person is psychotic, but yet I'm the crazy person that does it. So the world of cheer has undergone massive changes, and all of that change has raised questions. Why are professional cheerleaders paid minimum wage when NFL players make an average of $2 million a season? Why isn't the cheer industry doing more to address reportedly rampant sexual abuse? How safe is cheer really? And why is it still not formally recognized as a sport by the NCAA? You know, right now, cheerleaders can practice 24-7, 365 days a year. There's no restrictions on competitions. And so many proponents of declaring cheerleading a sport, which includes the medical community, have come out saying that cheerleading should be a sport because they say that that's the only way to regulate it and to make it safe for the athletes. On the other side, some feminists say cheerleading shouldn't be used as a placeholder for other women's sports. They fear a return to the days when women could only get near the field by cheering on the sidelines and don't want other sports funding to be replaced by cheer. And so far, that's the position judges have taken. There was a famous case in 2010, Quinnipiac University disbanded their volleyball team and said they were gonna replace it with competitive cheer team. And the federal judge ruled that cheerleading could not count as a Title IX equivalency sport. But the NCAA has declared two types of competitive cheer as emerging sports. And in 2021, the International Olympic Committee formally recognized the International Cheer Union, which means they're now allowed the petition for cheerleading to be included in the Olympics. Which, okay, we all know the Olympics is the world's largest venue for sports. And Adams thinks if that happens, it would likely be competitive cheer teams, like the one on the cheer TV show who would compete for Team USA, doing ambitious stunts and complicated gymnastics. And those teams are co-ed. Co-ed competitive cheerleading actually, in my mind, has the potential to challenge the gender binary that the entire industry and institution of sports is based, which of course has implications far beyond the mat, right? The cheerleading mat. I mean, that really has some significant implications in my mind for the world of sports. Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week? October 31st, 1994. Venus Williams makes her professional tennis debut. November 1st, 1938. Fan favorite racehorse Seabiscuit beats the reigning Triple Crown champion. And November 3rd, 1996. Los Angeles Lakers superstar Kobe Bryant becomes the then youngest player to make his NBA debut. If you know of any other stories from global sports history you'd like us to cover on this podcast, or if you'd just like to get in touch, please shoot us an email at sportspod at history.com. Special thanks to our guests, 
Dr. Natalie Adams, co-author with Pamela Bettis of Cheerleader, an American icon. We had lots of fun when we were researching this book because we would drink lots of wine and try to do herkies. That's 30-year-olds off a porch, so that was fun. <laughs> Thanks also to my mom, Kimberly Jackson-Jones, former Raiderette and current teacher at Troy High School. Mom, thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> I am so proud of you, my son. It has been a fun interview, <laughs> to say the least. This episode was produced by Julia Press. It was story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by Bill Moss. Sports History This Week is also produced by David Ingber and Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.